how do these people who want the kind of world I want, which is a world of more openness, more inclusion, a world, this kind of America that we're building that is made of people from everywhere, where people of all backgrounds can thrive and live their best lives. Um, how can we win? How can we win? Are we winning? How can we win? You know, I'm not interested in like, can we like have nicer conversation? I'm not like a moderate, like we should have, as you said, well, and I appreciate you clarifying that about the book. Like, I'm not someone who has like an aesthetic interest in, in the quality of our conversations. Like, I think anger is fine. I think division is actually fine. What I'm really writing about is contempt and dismissal. Hello, friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show you come to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you so much for hitting play. Thank you so much for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Friends, last week, I gave you this whole spiel on voting. Remember? Well, instead of giving you another spiel on voting, let me give you just one example before we get to my guest, our guest. Let me just give you one example of why voting really fucking matters. If you're listening to this podcast the week it comes out, then you'll know that last Sunday, October 30, Lula da Silva beat far-right tyrant wannabe Bolsonaro as the next president of Brazil in a stunning, a truly stunning comeback. This is huge news for freedom, for democracy, for the well-being of all Brazilians, and for the planet. I want to focus for a few seconds on that last part, the planet. I've had several guests in the past, like Pedro Andrade, Whitney Bauck, Catherine Hayhoe, and many others talk about how important the Amazon rainforest is to our climate crisis globally. Literally, the Amazon rainforest is the lungs of the world. And the Amazon is experiencing a devastating amount of deforestation. It's alarming, and it needs to stop if we want our children and their children and their children to have a planet, a habitable planet to live on. Bolsonaro is a climate denier, among many other terrible things. And since he took office, deforestation has increased at a truly frightening rate. When Lula da Silva was president back in the early 2000s, there was a massive decline in deforestation. In his first speech as president-elect, Lula said, quote, let's fight for zero deforestation. Brazil is ready to reside its leading role in the fight against our climate crisis, protecting all our biomes, especially the Amazon rainforest. Brazil and all the planet need a living Amazon. A standing tree is worth more than tons of wood illegally harvested by those who only think of easy profit. A river of clear water is worth more than gold extracted at the expense of mercury that kills fauna and risks human life. End quote. Those words are badass and so true. You may have heard this Cree indigenous prophecy that goes something like this. Only when the last tree has been cut down, the last fish been caught, and the last stream poisoned, will we realize that we cannot eat money. So why do I share this? 
Why do I share about something that is happening in Brazil when most of the listeners live in North America? Well, I share it because elections matter. Elections matter. I'm going to say it one more time because I really need you to hear, understand, embody that elections matter. So please make a plan to vote. Visit vote.org to find your polling place and for more details on voting. And please, please, please vote for human rights, vote for trans rights, vote for women's rights, vote for those that have plans to slow down our climate crisis, vote for candidates that want our children to know history as it was and not as we wished it was, vote for candidates that read banned books and tell others to read banned books. You get my point. Please fucking vote. Now for this week's guest. This is a good one, y'all, and it has to do with voting and elections and all of that. This is a really, really good one. My guest this week is the one and only Anand Girdardas. Anand is a speaker, an author, and a brilliant, brilliant mind. Anand has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Time, and he publishes his own newsletter called The Inc. He taught narrative journalism at NYU. He appears frequently on MSNBC and other news shows, and he's the author of one of my top books of 2018, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, and he's the author of a brand new book that just released on October 18 called The Persuaders, At the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds, and Democracy. The Persuaders is a brilliant and much-needed book for all of us in this current political and cultural moment. As Anand says in the book, the lifeblood of any free society is persuasion, changing other people's minds in order to change things. But my friends, we have lost, or maybe some of us never had the ability to persuade people, but we have definitely lost it. This idea of moving people toward meaningful change. So if you struggle with balancing calling out injustices and evils in the world while also trying to build fewer walls, longer bridges, and bigger tables with your siblings, with your parents, with your friends, coworkers, those in your community, and even though it's hard to do, those online, then this book is for you. And this podcast comes out a week before the midterms. Uh, so if this is your first time learning about Anand and his work, you're probably not going to have time to read the book and implement what it shares and says with your family and friends and community before the midterm elections. But I hope that this conversation helps some of you in these last days as you talk with that sibling, that parent, that coworker, that friend about what's at stake on November 8 and what's at stake in the months leading up to the 2024 election, regardless of what happens here at the midterms. This is a good conversation. I'm so excited that you get to listen in. Before we get into this conversation, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show. Anything goes. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Anand Girdardas. Let's go. It is a pleasure to have Anand Girdardas with me on the Let's Give a Damn podcast today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Did I do your name 
Justice, your surname. Um, say it one more time so I can properly evaluate it. Girdardas. Yeah, you did a great job. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Either way, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. I've been looking forward to this. We actually, you probably don't remember, but back when Winners Take All came out, tried to have you on the show, one of our schedules didn't align and it just didn't work out. And so we said, we'll do it at some point. And then you wrote this next amazing book. So I'm so glad that we finally get a chance to do it. But you're not, we both live in New York, but you're not in New York right now. Where in the world are you? Yeah, I just want to say I'm not responsible for this art behind me. I don't know, like if, if this art turns out to be, you know, some terrible person who's been canceled or something. I just want to, I'm in a hotel room uh, on book tour in, uh, in, in California, in San Francisco. Um, the book came out in a few days ago. So I, I did a, a big event in New York and then hit the road. And how this is stop, uh, which number of how many are you doing here in a row? Hometown in New York, Cambridge, Massachusetts the next day, Chicago uh, on Saturday. Uh, and then today is the next uh, next big event, uh, which is actually in the South Bay in Silicon Valley. You got you to take the case uh, to the people where they are. Um, so, I'm, so I'm doing two events uh, today in Silicon Valley at Stanford and at a wonderful bookstore uh, in Menlo Park called Kepler's in the heart of Silicon Valley. And then uh, San Francisco in the city tomorrow and then Seattle the next day. Amazing. I'm sure everyone in the Silicon Valley loves you after winners take all. They're, you're just their favorite person. Well, what's so interesting is it's a little bit like that's not entirely untrue. Like, what's so funny about it is it's a weird. I think when you write books, there's different kinds of books, right? Uh, and we're like getting into this right off the bat. Let's but like, go. There's different kinds of books where I think some people write about things that are like really alien to the readers who are reading about it, right? So if you write about Mars, and so you can write a great nonfiction book about Mars. Uh, most people reading that don't have any preconceived notion. Like they just know nothing. Right. And it, it's a kind of greenfield in their imagination and, and you're filling this kind of void for them, you know, or if you write about, you know, some lost civilization from 2000 years ago, like most people don't know about it. You're just filling this void. I do not do that. I write about things that I think everybody is sort of living and feeling, but maybe can't quite talk about because they have jobs or they've signed NDAs or they can't have distance from it because they have like responsibilities or, you know, and I'm, I'm like the Tom Wolf called writers, like the village gossip who can say the thing that everybody's like whispering to them. Yep. And I do the kind of writing where I think even if you don't like it, there's a lot of recognition because I'm writing about the thing that you're living. I'm not even living it as much as you're living it. And so when Winners Take All came out, which is my third book, in that Silicon Valley world, there was definitely a lot of like, who the fuck is this guy? Yep. But honestly, there was a lot more like, ouch, you know, which is not the same as like, fuck you, you know? Right. Right. It's like, and there was a lot more privately, but even publicly, some amount of recognition of like, like we got caught, like we're like, yeah, we're not maybe changing the world as much as we said, like, you know, and so one of the really fascinating things about winners take all, and, and we saw this actually when the book was selling and you get all this information about like where it's selling. And one of the like, biggest zip codes of it was in that South Bay area, Silicon Valley. And so I'm always interested in the ways in which books, partly by being slow, 
um, I think I'm sometimes seen as a provocative person, but my books are actually not like that. I may be like that apart from my books. Um, you know, we, in this book, I talk about calling in versus calling out. My books almost always call in, even winners take all. I may call out external to the book. Um, and so I have an interesting and complicated relationship with, with Silicon Valley and have gone there many times to have these conversations and have found it more surprisingly more generative and reflective than I would have imagined. Hopefully all of us, no matter which club we're a part of, whether it's the club of plutocrats, right? That's neither, neither you nor me, but like billionaires or whether it's a religious club or whatever the club is. Yeah, hopefully we are aware of where our club, our people, our clique, our, what we identify as, the group we're a part of, where we, they fall short, right? And so if someone like you comes in that is calling in, that is saying, hey, I'm pointing out the problems, but I'm doing it, I'm doing it very much in, I've read all the books, I'm doing it very much in not a fuck you kind of way. Yeah, the, most, nor, most people will say, yeah, I'll engage with that. That hurts, but again, you're not, and we'll get into that here in a little bit with some of the book after we do some introduction stuff. But yeah, you do that so well, which is, again, one of the reasons when I read Winners Take All in 2018, I think I read like 75 or 80 books that year. It was top three, like without a doubt. And, you know, this book, The Persuaders as well, because I, I am very, I'm not a great, I am call out uh, in all the things that I do. And I'm trying to get better in my late thirties. I feel like I'm just now growing up and able to start doing more of that calling in. And again, one of the reasons why I'm so attracted to what you write and what you're calling us to. So, uh, but can I just say, I think 40 for me was like a really interesting, it was partly because I was writing this and I, you know, that, that date for me landed in the, by chance in the time that I was working on this book, but it, it, it felt like a kind of meaningful thing that 40 was like a moment where I tried to, in part through the exposure to these characters that I was writing about in The Persuaders, but in part, I think just because of growing up, you know, reflected on some of that call in versus call out and, and, and like my own levels of, of kind of mercy and open heartedness. And, um, yeah, so there's hope for you on the other side of 40. <laughs> Thank you so much. No, I, 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 I too, as well, in my late thirties now, I'm really glad. I'm really glad that, like, I don't have, you have a much bigger platform than I do. I'm building some stuff over here, but let's give a damn. We've got some stuff cooking. But as my name gets out there more in my work, I'm so glad that any measure of success that I'm having, it's coming now that I'm in my mid thirties and now into my late thirties and not when I was a complete and utter asshole when I was like 21, 22, 23, right? Like I feel so bad for these people that are finding success and kind of getting publicly recognized way earlier in life. Because again, I just feel like now I can, I am maturing. I have three kids and a wonderful partner and the kids are, you know, eight, nine, and 10 years old. Like, yeah, I just feel like it's a good, it's a good time in my life to start even learning these things and speaking them out. So, um, yeah, I feel very good about this age. I don't know about you. I feel like I'm just getting started in my career, even though it's had several iterations. Um, yeah, it's wonderful. Okay. Before I know that once we start talking about the persuaders, we won't stop talking about it until I have to look at the clock and say, we have to go. So before we get there, th this podcast and platform, let's give a damn is not just about books or projects or companies or organizations. It's about the people behind them. Like I'm mainly interested in showcasing 
here are a million people doing a million different things. These are all the ways you can give a damn, right? And here are all these different kinds of ideas you can embrace. So before we get into the book and all that this book brings us and how it's going to help us, not just in these upcoming midterms, but in just daily life, I want to talk about you for a second. So on a very practical level, I want to do some history. But before that, um, I have a very personal selfish question. We both live in New York. You live in Brooklyn. I live in Manhattan. Um, Raising two kids in Brooklyn. First of all, I also want to call out your uh, partner, Priya Parker, also a fan of hers. Just incredible work. You two are this power couple that's uh, doing really admirable work. I love it. But you're raising kids in Brooklyn. Again, this is super selfish and very like not important, but it is important to me. When we were deciding to move to New York, uh, so many of my friends assumed right away that because we have three kids, oh, you're moving to, like, what part of Brooklyn are you moving to? And I was like, I kind of want to give Manhattan a shot. Like, we really love, uh, you know, Harlem, and that's where we moved. And I love so many things about Manhattan, and I do like Brooklyn as well. But even since we moved here, we're noticing that a lot of my friends that have kids, they moved to Brooklyn. How is Brooklyn for raising kids? Do you make that case as well or more to each their own in terms of the, I guess the, I guess one thing I'm thinking about too is like the kind of, because raising kids is all about what you put in front of them, right? My job as a parent, your job as a parent is not to tell our kids what to do and what to believe and how to be. I see my job as like showing them good things in the world and saying, what do you think about that? And then showing them bad things, say, what do you think about that? Um, and then processing through all of that. And so a lot of that is about where we live and what they see when they go to school every day and to and from the store and from the museum and all that stuff. So how's Brooklyn for raising kids, man? Like, do you, do you, do you like it? Do you advocate for it? Do you, do you get that same thing about the Manhattan versus Brooklyn raising kids? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually funny what, what you just said about it in terms of like, what are you passively exposing them to? Like, you know, um, to me is actually the heart of why I love it. Look, I, I'm not here to tell anybody they should live anywhere. I think there's different, there's different things for different people. Um, I think there's an intensity to Manhattan that I find very exciting uh, personally. And if I was a single person um, or even if my wife and I you know, didn't have kids, I think there's a good chance that we would live, you know, somewhere like that. But Brooklyn is so incredible for the stage of life rat for our family. I think we're like committed committed to Brooklyn until the end at this point. And it's exactly actually what you just said, which is, I mean, first of all, I love being in a place. Let, let me put it this way. I had, I grew up in, in with the privilege of living in very, you know, nice neighborhoods in Shaker Heights, Ohio and, and suburban Maryland outside DC. But those places I lived, although they were full of like educated professionals, they were all, no offense, like boring job people, you know, a lot of lawyers and accountants and, you know, I'm not sure I ever met as a child. I'm not sure how many artists I ever met, mm. like actual working artists, you know, like that was just not the world I lived in. That's not the world of my parents' friends. It wasn't, I don't know how many there are in Shaker Heights, Ohio, you know, um, I'm not sure how many people I met who like made documentaries. I'm not sure how many people I met who communicated on the radio. I'm not sure how many people I met who were writers, you know, like until I kind of started pursuing that as a thing in my like late teenage years, that was not like an, I don't think I'd ever met anybody socially as a child who wrote for the New York times or, you know, anything like that. Sure. Um, and it, you know, it's still, I still found my way to it. 
what is so amazing for my children, I think, is that they live in an environment where without any self-conscious effort, when we walk to the park, you know, on most days of the year, we run into this incredible range of people, many of them friends of ours, some of them acquaintances, who are doing doing this kind of range of incredible things that I feel really proud to be exposing my kids to, you know. Um very few cynical jobs, you know, a lot of a lot of creative jobs, a lot of people living incredible publicly minded passions, a lot of people who making art, a lot of people um who like gambled it all to move to New York and are you know, screaming from the rooftop, the thing they want to scream from the rooftop in whatever, you know, mode of communication they are. And like my kids know, and I'm talking about close friends and also acquaintances, like my kids know filmmakers, they know feature filmmakers and they know doc filmmakers. They know people who they see the newspaper and they know people who help make that newspaper. They know people who write, they, they know people who paint, you know, my, my son is seven met a, you know, an incredible painter in New York named Samantha Nye at a July, uh, July 4th party a few years ago. And like he and Samantha Nye developed a, their own kind of conversation and relationship. And this incredibly acclaimed painter, um, you know, occasionally sees my son at like an event and we sometimes bring him to an event deliberately because he will see Sam and they go in the corner and have like a conversation about painting. Like I didn't have a single conversation like that about the things I wanted ended up wanting to do till I was like in my twenties, you know? And so I don't, we don't have enough space in our apartment and like, we're always kind of on each other's thing. And, you know, like I kind of have to like, you know, like we, the, the bathroom situation, I mean, it's just all the things about living in New York that I think a lot of people in other places would be like, you live how? Like what? You, you accept what? But I would just never live anywhere else. It is so incredible to me. And I particularly, you said it exactly right. The thing that, and I hadn't thought of it that way until you said it. The thing that feels most inalienable to me about it is I'm like showing my kids this range of like non-cynical things they can be. Like I'm showing my kids people who went for it, who dared it, who were willing to live in squalor for it, but like who wanted to do some of them still live in squalor for it, but who like wanted to do what they wanted to do in the world and like did it. And I don't think there's any bigger gift you can give your children. I think you have without even knowing it, because you don't know the arguments that I've gotten from other people for moving to Brooklyn, but you just gave the best one. Here's why it's one of the things that we've been working through here in Harlem. We love Harlem. What a historic neighborhood. I mean, just incredible. There's history everywhere. Love being in Manhattan. Everybody's nose is to the grindstone. Everybody's working. Everybody's hustling. But we are at heart very, uh, A, we don't need a lot of things. Like we love like grinding and the simplicity of life as long as there is community and like-minded people going after like-minded things that we can uh, build off of and build community with, right? And we've been here in Harlem for... <clears throat> 18 months or so, trying to figure out what's next. And again, as much as we love it, what we have found here in this neighborhood, as beautiful and as amazing and as diverse as it is, is there are very few people like what you just described. And those are our people. 
the people that are creating things, making things, risking everything, because that's what we've done. I'm a maker, I'm a creator. And at this point, I've risked everything into the six figures of my own money to like make this and make that and do this. And most of it's fallen flat on its face, right? But we keep going. And everybody around us, there's there's not this sense of wanting to build community, not just in our building, but in our neighborhood. It's very much like everybody keeps to themselves. Everybody's working two or three jobs, totally get it. But it's just like that. They go from work to family to like work to family, just up and down, you know, to school and back. And there's not, not this idea of like, let's build a community. I've always been very en- envious of uh, when Tina uh, Tina from uh, Creative Mornings over there in uh, in Fort Greene, um, she, she's always talking about these like stoop hangs, right? Where everybody sits on the stoop and they hang out and they have, they have these meals anyway. So all that to say, I mean, you, when you, I'm jogging in Fort Greene park, Tina is often pauses and like claps and cheers. I, I guess she understands how hard it is for me to actually get a run in. So <laughs> yeah, she's, I mean, she's just the relentless cheerleader of all. It's so, so amazing. But, but when, when I've heard people talk deeply about community and stuff, it usually happens over in Brooklyn. So anyway, we don't have to spend a ton of time there. I want to Red move love. On. It's the Brooklyn way. That's a, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, it just, there's Brooklyn. a, there's a lot of good art and, and you're not really leaving Manhattan, right? Like it is a train ride away. Like you could go see a Broadway show in almost the same time that I could probably from up in oh, Harlem. Yeah. It still takes 30 minutes to get down on the train and get to the theater. And so it's really not that much difference in terms of, you're not really leaving anything. Um, We'll figure it out. We'll figure. Maybe we'll see over there in Brooklyn uh, when the next. Who knew this was going to be a real estate podcast? I know, I know it, I know it. <laughs> but I'm also trying to. I I love to try to convince as many people as I possibly can that New York is the greatest place in the world. I understand why most people won't move here and most people can't hack it. I totally get it. But for reasons you stated, for reasons I stated, and people have heard on here ad nauseum, like this is the greatest place. When you consider all the things, when you consider all that life has to offer, this is the place that has it all. I mean, the entire world has come here. The entire planet has moved here, food, cultures, everything else. And so I I love it, love it so much. Um, Okay, thank you for that. Uh, Maybe we'll see you over in Brooklyn very soon. Before we get to Persuaders, I want to try to do something here today. I want to try to sell two books for you. And we already kind of talked about winners take all, but I want you to briefly describe, because I do think also, I'm also interested to hear after we talk about winners take all for a minute or two, I want you to talk about the journey from winners take all to the persuaders, because I'm sure there were correlations there. I'm sure one, I'm sure if you wouldn't have written winners take all in 2018, persuaders wouldn't have happened as it did in 2022. So briefly describe winners take all. How did that come about? Whose feathers did you ruffle and continue to ruffle? And yeah, then kind of we'll, we'll bridge the gap between winners take all and the persuaders. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think um, <clears throat> like any good night out with your friends, books have hangovers and um, or leave hangovers. And they, they, books kind of, um, in a way, like create, sorry, I'm going to fix my uh, lighting here. Oh, you're fine. Um. I think in some ways books books um, leave unfinished business, right? You you set out on a project. In my case, these are reported books, so you talk to a lot of people. You try to, you know, and you actually make it smaller as you go. So it's really, I try to make it about a very specific world, a very specific set of conversations in that world. 
And then um, as it gets more precise and shaped, things fall out of it. It's not about that. It's not about that. It's not, and that's part of the discipline of a defined book. And often that kind of string that begins the next book is, is, in, is in that cutting room floor or is things you found. Or, or in, in the case of this book, people I met and got closer to because of Winners Take All. So to tell the story a little bit, Winners Take All is a book about, for those who don't know, uh, which is probably most people, uh, a book about um, how the very rich and powerful I write about in, in the United States, but although it's a global phenomenon to an extent, um, the richest and most powerful people in the world have continued to take all, to grab more and more wealth and power and resources, and do so using the mechanism of the illusion of do-gooding. Philanthropy, impact investing, you know, giving a damn, like the, the appearance of giving a damn but giving a damn purely expressed through the kind of market-oriented, private sector, businessman-led solutions that in the argument of the book, double down on the very structures that are causing these problems in the first place, right? And in the style that I do, I didn't do that by throwing rocks from a distance. I went inside this world. I spent time with people in this world and I tried to understand how they see it. And I tried to, you know, I wrote about people grappling with it, people critiquing it from the inside, people who believed in it. I wrote about, you know, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who's a deeply kind person, meditates, like really you could tell just like felt for humanity, but deeply in the way of many in Silicon Valley. This guy, early investor in some of the biggest companies in the world. Really believed, as so many in Silicon Valley do, that the best thing for the world was for the companies he was invested in to grow bigger. That if he could grow these companies bigger, the world would get better. And could not imagine a world in which the interests of companies and the interests of humanity could ever diverge, right? And so instead of throwing rocks at that, I spend time with him. I'm trying to try to understand how do you get inside that sensibility and also critique it. Or I spend time with the president of the Ford Foundation, Darren Walker who is someone who's in that world of big philanthropy, perhaps most powerful you know, uh, foundation leader in the world, and had his own doubts about it as someone black, gay, and born poor, born on the wrong side of a whole bunch of power equations, who was now on the right side of them, but had a lot of skepticism about the systems that he was born on the wrong end of, even as he was working now inside the Citadel, right? And so Winners came out, and it was, you know, I think it frankly was it was successful beyond in terms of impact on the conversation beyond anything I could have dreamed of. I had two books before that, that were respectable and well-reviewed, but when something happened with winners that like, I think if that happens once in your lifetime, you're like a very lucky person. And I certainly felt that way. Right. Um, and when it did, it put me into a conversation. I mean, I was basically decrying fake change in the book. Are we talking about fake news? This is a critique of fake change. And so winners, the people who loved winners and the people who felt validated and built up by winners were people who did real change. Movement leaders, activists, elected officials, a lot of those people, the plutocrats that may not have liked winners or had a complicated relationship to it. But the other part of the reception of winners was a lot of people felt really honored by it, right? A lot of people who've been toiling 
to do real work to actually build power and change the equations of this country, they felt honored and they felt seen and they felt that someone was making a case for the kind of labor they engage in. And so I got to know a lot of those people even more than I already did and talk to them and have, you know, meaningful conversations with, with them. And as I did, I started to understand what they were up against in their movements and in their spaces and in their conversations they were having. And obviously they were up against the structural barriers that I wrote about in Winners Take All and this kind of pretensions of billionaire change. But I realized they were also facing this other urgent crisis that was really top of mind for them, but not top of the discourse necessarily. Mm. It's more top of the discourse now. And the, and the second problem they faced was this kind of tendency towards smallness in their own movements. That here were movements whose very purpose was to win political fights and arguments. But a, the kind of culture of pol the polarized time had, had, had developed this culture of smallness. And smallness being, we're never going to win those people, let's just mobilize our side. Or those people can't enter our movement, they don't know how to use the right terms. Or, you know, we don't want those people in our movement, they're not radical enough. Or those people need to read more theory before they come into our spaces. Or um, if you're for, if you voted for Trump twice, if you're anti-vaxxer, you'll never change your mind, you know? And some of these really fascinating people I was speaking to in movement and organizing spaces were kind of like the internal dissidents in their own field saying, hold up guys, we're in the conversion business. That's the whole game. It doesn't matter if you like these people or not. It doesn't matter if we, you know, what you think of them or not. The whole game, the whole ball game, if you want your kids to be safe and democracy to go on and a future for all of us of all backgrounds to, 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 you know, to th thrive, if you want that to arrive. We need more souls tomorrow than we had yesterday. Bottom line. And I became really interested in these, in these people who were kind of waging that argument in their own spaces, a kind of, in some ways, obvious argument, but had become a non-obvious argument. That, was, that is not an obvious thing in 2022. The idea that we need to persuade if we want to be a democracy and that giving up on persuasion is the road to tyranny, civil war, and political violence. And so I kind of started following some of these people who I was having these conversations with. Um, and, you know, that's in the book. That's Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's Alicia Garza from Black Lives Matter. That's Linda Sarsour, another activist who led the Women's March, uh, Resistance to Trumpism from Trump. Uh, Loretta Ross, veteran reproductive justice advocate and civil rights activist. Um, it's a summer camp where white parents with adopted children of color go to learn more about race while trying to manage their own discomfort. Um, and the trainers are trying to figure out how to teach white people about race while being honest with them without losing them. Um, I wrote about a messaging consultant. I wrote about cognitive scientists who are trying to figure out how do you protect people from lies, disinformation, hatred. I wrote about a cult deprogrammer because frankly, we have a lot of people who are essentially in a large online dispersed cult right now. And with all of these people, uh, and I wrote about canvassers, I should say, and we can get into that. But all of these people I was writing about, what they had in common was that they refused the great write-off of other people. 
that is, I think, the norm right now in our culture. And they are determined to, to save democracy, to realize the promise of democracy by, by winning more people to their side. And they believe they can do it. They are doing it. They have ways of doing it that are far superior to what most of us are doing these days. And I thought most of us could learn from them because I don't know about you, but I am tired of despair. I'm tired of shaking my fists at the TV. I'm tired of waiting for, you know, daddy Bob Mueller or daddy Merrick Garland to do for me what I don't feel I can deliver for myself at the ballot box. And so I wanted to feel hope again, but I wanted reported hope and the hope of watching people who are doing the work do it. And the persuaders is a practical, handy, but also narrative story-driven account of people who are doing it, who are winning the country back from the fascists. And it's a guide to how you can help do so too. Beautiful introduction to both books and a beautiful transition. I think one really played into the other. It's very obvious with the people that you were talking to. And, and some of these people that you mentioned are very obvious ones that you would choose for to, to kind of, yeah, bring to the table here in this table. But how did you, I guess, as I look at everybody, as I read about these people and look at the the kind of wide range of the kinds of people you had, was there a filter you were using to make sure that you had the right amount of this kind of person and that kind of, like, how did you pick all the people you picked so that you got to a certain number of interviews and conversations and investigations that you were like, oh, that's the complete that's the swath of people that I was looking for to make this book as complete as possible. Did you, was that part of the thinking? Yeah, it's, it's a very great question. I mean, it's a little complicated in that um, there are some ways in which I try to curate it, and but it's also like, it's a pretty big ask to get someone, I mean, you know, in this book, so look at the thickness of this book, right? Like, in this book, there's probably only like eight or ten characters. That's a lot of pages per person, you know? And so that's a lot of conversations. So it's a commitment to be written about in a book like this, right? I mean, some of these people I did, you know, hours and hours and hours of interviews. Um, so partly it's limited by like, who's willing to do that? Right? Who's willing to trust you? You know, that that's like a very small number of people, first of all, right? Just because people are busy, it's hard. And then there's like, who's interesting? And then you want a diverse, you know, it's important to think about how representative a group of people is this. So I thought a lot about that. I, you know, this book, I, I don't make a, it's not a big explicit thing, but this book is a lot about women of color organizers in particular, partly because of the era we were living in. I just thought like the people actually doing some of the people, most remarkable people on the ground are women of color organizers or former organizers, people trained as organizers who are really pushing for this bigger we in a way that is not soft peddling white supremacy and, and misogyny, like those women don't do that, but is a little bit more attentive to how to actually pull people into the movement than some of their own allies are, right? Just because of their own quirks of experience and thinking. Um, so that was an interesting focus of the book. I wanted to center people who I think don't get centered enough as our leading thinkers on, on saving democracy and realizing democracy. Um, and then I think similar to Winners Take All, similar to my India Calling book, I think three out of my four books are like this. They, and three, I think three out of the four books, with the exception of The True American, are basically built on the model of what Naipaul, V.S. Naipaul, who's kind of my literary hero, 
um, the travel books he did, where he basically would go to a country and then he would like talk to like 10 or 12 people or, you know, maybe more, maybe less, and then do interviews with them. And so they would sort of build into a narrative. And it was sort of random who he met, but also very constructed. And, you know, he got help from people. You should talk to this person. You should talk to that. Um, and it was kind of a literary artistic decision, like whether you'd covered, but it wasn't like, I need a chapter on this, I need a chapter on that. I don't work like that as much. And this is, the book is not claiming to be some definitive, like summary of a thing, right? So I think of it almost as a travel book, although it's not a travel book, a travel book of a field or of a conversation. And so as I started, it started to become clear. Okay. One version of this is the world of activism, right? And organizing. There is a real debate happening in these spaces, particularly among some of these women of color who are at the edge of this thinking. They are in a debate about this kind of write-off versus persuasion. And like that debate's fascinating. And I knew that, you know, I wanted actually three of them, not one of them, to have to open the book with their own struggle in that conversation that they are in, right? And then I, you know, the summer camp, it was like, okay, these, we've heard these activists talking about these demands for a racially egalitarian society, right? But where this is actually going to hit the road, these ideals are going to hit the road is like very normal, you know, non-activist, like people of all backgrounds, frankly, who are going to have to live these things in all the ways that these ideals trickle down into daily life in their office and in their schools and in their families and whatever. So let's go see where the activist ideals are being kind of delivered as a new kind of racial education curriculum to these parents. And let's see regular people trying to grapple with it. So that feels like, okay, that makes sense, you know? And then I really wanted to get into this political realm of, and I actually the, the true story of AOC being in the book and hundred pages of the book is just about AOC. Um, she wrote herself into it. I was just actually texting with her about a TV appearance she did on my show. And I was like thanking her for either about to come on or coming on. I was texting with her about that. And she's like, what are you working on? And I told her about the very early incipient stage of this book. And she said to me, oh, you know, I consider myself a persuader, but no one sees me that way. And I immediately, that's the kind of narrative tension that I'm interested in, right? Fascinating. And I, I really became interested in that. That's to me the most interesting thing about her, right? She became, she has a reputation, which is also deserved for being provocative and strident and ideological, which I think she would cop to in a second. And I think she's more of like oriented towards an organizer's mentality of always growing and building a bigger we and bringing people in than anybody realizes. That's just not, you know, I write in the book that you can't, you can't, you can't choose where you're standing and what you're wearing when the lightning strikes, mm. you know, and the lightning struck her in the, in the form of the, you know, what I call in the book, like Duchess of the Doctrinaire. And like, that's in her. It's not the whole story of her, but that's, that's who she was and where she was standing when the lightning struck. And it's become the whole story of her, the single story of her. Um, and I tried to complicate that story for her by telling a story of how someone with a, in a way, opposite orientation to life became through this kind of Fox News character caricaturization and then the rest of the media's view um, and her own choices seen in this different way and how she struggles with calling in and calling out and with with stridency and 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 kind of uh more open-hearted organizers approach 
Um, and then getting into messaging. I felt messaging was a very big part of the story. The Democratic Party is not good at it. Everyone knows that, uh, including top Democrats will complain about this to me. Um, and, and then getting into, you know, if I felt like we needed a disinformation chapter. And so I actually asked on Twitter, is anybody doing work to protect people from like COVID disinformation? Because that's when the book was starting out. And I heard about, you know, uh, a guy doing incredible work um, to to protect people from disinformation on climate and other issues like like COVID. Um, and then finally, this experiment on deep canvassing. So, you know, where people go door to door. And so it it just... You know, you hear about different things, and then I, I felt at some point, okay, what I try to do in my books is actually have a quite diverse group of things that may not seem like they're all a thing, and I try to make them a thing together, scoop them up together so they feel like a thing. I did that in Winners, right? I mean, I the, the, the college to McKinsey pipeline and mega philanthropy are not on the surface the same thing, but I tried to make them the same thing, part of this complex called Market World through the crafting of the book. And I think I tried to do that again here. You did an incredible job, I think. And one of the, so I, I am, I'm very skeptical when someone says in, in this world that we live in, where there is so much at stake, where he, women's rights and LGBTQ rights and uh, black lives and so many people and things and ideas are at stake. I'm very, at first, resistant to most people when they say, Let's all come together. Let's figure it out, right? Let's, you know, there's ways that we need to come to the table. And, 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 I, and I believe that's the way, coming to the table. But I also am very skeptical because there's such dangerous ideologies afoot. And there are, there's so, I mean, we have, we literally in Los Angeles, not Houston, Texas, not, you know, and Louisville, Kentucky, we're talking Los Angeles, this place that everybody thinks is a haven of, you know, liberals and leftists. Nazis were hanging, you know, Kanye is right. You know, Kanye was right about the Jews canvases over the 405 yesterday. Like there's some crazy shit happening right now. And so the, the activist in me wants to just, wants to be polarizing, wants to figure out who's on my team and who's not, who are the bad guys and who are the good guys. And some of the people that you pick, this is what I loved. And this is what I think your call to action is different than so many of the other like kumbaya, let's all come together kind of conversations that are being had is that some of the people you chose in the book, including AOC and Linda Sarsour and Bernie Sanders, like these, some of these people in the book that are, that are highlighted AOC to, you know, to a hundred pages of length. Again, they're not seen as these, like on the face of their work and of their lives, they're not seen as these peacemakers, these come to the, t I mean, Linda Sarsour, like she's been canceled by everybody and anything. And, you know, a very, proud and loud, you know, and, and a, a passionate speaker and activist, right? So these are not these like tempered individuals. And so one of the things I love about what was presented in this book is not this case for mediocrity and being a moderate. It's simply a case for no matter what your beliefs are, no matter how left they go, our job is to persuade people and we can, and we can do that. You you said something interesting a few seconds ago that I want to hit on for a second. You mentioned that Dems are bad at messaging, 100%, absolutely crystal clear. And so I don't want to make this an us versus them sort of thing, but Republicans have been able to, they have been able to win millions and millions of people over to incredibly, verifiably, like factually harmful ideologies. Like there's nothing good in them, nothing good about them. We have history and data to say this is not a good thing. And they're winning them over by in droves. 
So what are they appealing to? What part of humans, the, the humanity of a person, are Republicans appealing to where they're winning? Because I believe at the end of the day, Democrat, Republican, left, right, no matter who you are, we all want the same things in life. We all want safety, security, prosperity for our friends and family. We want a good job. We want to make money. We want to take care of our people, right? We all want the same things. We're just going about it vastly differently. Safety for you know an NRA person is have as many guns as possible. I feel unsafe around that. I'll never own a gun in my life probably. So like we're we both want safety, but we see it vastly different. So what are they, Anand? What are they appealing to? What makes them better at messaging to where they're actually winning so many people over to really really bad ideas? I think. I think what the right is doing <clears throat> combines. purely unconscionable methods and tools on the one hand, and on the other, morally neutral tools that they happen to be using for terrible ends, right? And I think sometimes on the left, we eschew all of these methods because we associate them with what they're being used for, even though the tools themselves are not problematic, right? And hmm. so if I had to summarize it, I would say the right you know, like there's a kind of term you hear in business or in technology, which is like user-centered design, right? Which is, you know, designing a thing, really starting with like, who are the users and what's going on with them and building the product out from that. I think one way to understand the right today is that it's an incredibly user-centered political movement, not in terms of what it delivers for people. And the politics is very carefully tailored to an astute psychological and emotional reading of what is going on in people and with people, right? Mm. It is like, it is a politics almost built on top of the foundation of, of uh, what are the actual fears? What's driving those fears? What are the anxieties? Where does people's sense of self come from? Where did it come from? In what ways is it threatened by all kinds of stuff? What are those threats? How can I talk about that? And so, and that's, you know, a big part of that is white people learning to live in a egalitarian country, learning to share the country instead of break it. A lot of that is men coping with the erosion and, and decline of, of patriarchy. But a lot of it is other stuff. The rise of China just changed the economic structure and ladder in almost every county in this country. You know, the globalization more generally did the same. The technology has changed how we, you know, live, think, uh, eat, work, learn things, find out about the news. Uh, we've lived through a ton of change. And I don't think we, this is, I don't think this is like weirdly it's become sort of an obsession of mine. I, I don't think we talk about how much change we've lived through and how just in any society, it's totally destabilizing, right? I mean, I, I was a foreign correspondent in India when it was going through, you know, 7 8% GDP growth. And, you know, I think if I remember right, that means that, um, you know, the economy is doubling like every, you know, every decade or something like that. If I'm, if I could, I could be wrong. Don't, don't shoot me at economists. Um, and it was very obvious the society was being remade. Like, and being remade fast and being remade all the time. The meaning of being a son or a daughter or a farmer or a worker or an employee was totally in this ancient 
culture, thousands of year old culture, stable society, never had a revolution the way Chinese did. Suddenly, everything was being reinvented all the time. And I don't think it's an accident that India is now under kind of fascist rule. Um, because people, there was so much novelty and so much uprooting from traditional experience. And I, I think the people who wanted the more open cosmopolitan vision of India maybe didn't do a, as good a job of realizing the amount of fear and anxiety that was being released, even among people who are enjoying the new India, who are enjoying the prosperity and opportunities and connection to the world, you can still become rootless and disconnected. Well, I say that because I don't think we are as self-conscious as people were in India at that time, that we have lived through an era of extraordinary churn in every area of life. And I basically think it has left a lot of people, not just white people, not just men, everyone, quite upended mm. psychologically, emotionally, right? And basically, the, the right, I think, has very entrepreneurially understood that and gone in there and exploited it. And so I want to be clear, the messaging thing is not just like they write better slogans. It is a completely different project, the right. message, right? Because it is user-centered, because it starts with what's going on with you. And then it is saying, okay, you fear that your town has a kind of different complexion now than when you were growing up. How can I get you from that stimuli to fearing an alien invasion on the southern border? Mm. That's my agenda. All you think is like, your Walgreens cashiers now are hard for you to understand. That's where you come into the conversation. But, but I'm going to start with you there. I'm going to walk with you, funnel you the way a business thinks about like funneling a customer. I'm going to like funnel you from the stimulus of the Walgreens observation to fearing this invasion of this, maybe becoming a militia man yourself on the Southern border. Or you have the stimulus of your kid come home and saying, mommy, daddy, is America a bad country? Is America an evil country? that started with slavery and genocide. And that's a stimulus. And, and, and the right understands that that's happening, that your, your kids are, in fact, saying that regardless of your ideology. Your kids are going to come home and say that. And the right is like there to funnel you from that stimulus all the way through a like militant uh, feeling against CRT and grooming and whatever this like ginned up stuff. And now if I think about the left, the messaging is like roughly about policy or it's some gauzy stuff about America. It's not user-centered, basically. It's not user-centered about those kind of concerns for those people, but it's also not user-centered around the base of the left either. It, it's just not. And you see this, like a prime example of this is right now with prices and gas prices. And you see so many Democrats or people on the left lecturing voters that they care more about gas prices than about democracy as an mm. issue. Mm. I don't think you run against voters. Voters are telling you that they care about gas prices and prices and let's say crime. Now, I am fully aware that a lot of this crime perception is ginned up, doesn't actually hold up. You look at the data. You can't say that to voters. You can't tell voters that, well, the price of gas is not going to matter if we lose our democracy. This is like the democratic message so often. You cannot do this. You cannot do this. You have to meet people where they are. 
that what the right would do, and it is doing, is start with like, okay, it sounds like, Nick, you care a lot about gas prices. So now let me explain to you, let me back my agenda, which in their case is some billionaire agenda. Let me back it into the thing you're feeling, right? A democratic approach, instead of constantly telling people that they're wrong in you know, the priorities that they care about, would I think start with gas prices and tell people a story that that's to fight high gas prices, you need to be empowered to choose leaders who look like you, who know hardship the way you do, and who are going to get in there and represent you. And what the Republicans are trying to do through rigging and having billionaire-backed candidates and whatever is, is trying to have people who, who won't care about your gas prices in there. And the Republicans are trying to make sure that if you choose someone who's going to help you with gas prices because they get your pain, that maybe their election won't count and it'll be thrown out. The Republicans are trying to prevent you from choosing your fighter on gas prices. What I just did there was a way of talking about the democracy issue that was user-centered. And I'm not saying I'm not like a slogan expert. There's probably ways you can make that even sharper and shorter, right? But just intellectually, I was starting with the thing they are telling me matters. And I was not condescending to them that they're wrong about what matters. I was explaining the connection in an empathetic way of democracy as something that is a essentially a tool, which is what it is, to improve gas prices and all the other things that are pain points in your life. Um, and so that's just one example of, I think, what it would look like for democratic messaging, but more frankly, the, the, the democratic approach to voters to be user-centered and to therefore start with, what are you fearing? What are you angry about? What, and, and to speak to human beings in the way human beings are, to have a human-centered understanding of, you know, like anger is actually fine. It works on people. Democrats are so squeamish about this. Picking fights is okay. It actually helps people, the reptile brain, understand, you know, there's nothing wrong with demonizing insurance company executives who deny coverage to small children. Demonize a little bit. It's okay. It's okay. Right? Uh, if it's okay to deny coverage to small children, it's okay to demonize the insurance executives who make that decision. Like, get a little more comfortable with that. That's like, meet people where they are, like, understand how people are and don't be, don't become the Harvard party. Don't see, be so high minded, you know, and, and, and intellectual that you're not willing to like get down there and, and like, you know, get a little scrappy. That was brilliant and super helpful. Like I just learned, I feel like I just learned so much. And I think next month you and I should get back together and we are going to, regardless of how the midterms pan out, I think it would be a really interesting, I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just saying somebody should do this in the aftermath of this midterm elections is go look at these big, the, the messaging and the slogans. I'm sure somebody else is doing that as well. Probably many people, it's their job to do it. But in assess through the lens that you just kind of offered, again, regardless of which way some of these very pivotal, important races in very important states pan out, it'd be interesting to see how that messaging works because you're so incredibly right that as I look at, as much as I hate what they're saying and how they're laying it out, these Republicans are connecting with the individual in a way that Democrats, the Democrats cannot seem to do. They just cannot seem, all these ideas that the Democrats are sharing are true, but they're big they seem unattainable. It's all climate change. It's all the planets burning up. It's all these big things that, again, feel really hard to get our hands around. 
And what I see in so many ways with, again, people that I find repulsive in so many ways on the Republican side, they are, they're, they're messaging. I mean, it's why I, I love my, my parents to the moon and back. They're amazing, but it's why my immigrant father voted for Donald Trump in 2016. My immigrant father who came here as an undocumented immigrant who, you know, has benefited from mostly democratic benefits all throughout his life, you know, voted for somebody who hates him, like literally would never spend a moment with him. But the messaging was on. It really pinpointed so many of the fears and so many of the anxieties that my dad has about this country. Um, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Let's talk for a minute about, again, we could spend an hour there, but we don't have an hour. We have a few more minutes. Let's talk about our, how do I say this? Our inability to let people evolve and believe that they can, right? Because that's a huge part of this persuasion. And let's talk about, along with that, so we on the left, me, me on the left, it's really hard for me to accept that someone can change from a really bad idea, bad language, bad way of living, bad messaging to something different, right? And along with that is we've got to address how fucking complicated we all are. And over the past few years, since 2016, when I've seen very extreme rhetoric, when, for example, when, you know, these celebrities will come out and they'll say something huge and bomb, like just huge and big, right? Um, whether it's, I'm not even talking about Donald Trump anymore or politics. I'm talking about when somebody gets canceled, somebody said, you know, Kevin Hart, they dug up a tweet about a very homophobic tweet from 10 years ago or whatever. And there's all these things happening in society. And we're so quick to just absolutely annihilate anyone who said something or did something that we don't like or believe something that we don't like. Um, my first thought is, yo, like we all just need to take a step back because no matter who I'm pointing my finger at, you've got skeletons in your closet. You have said things, you have done things. And even more than that, you have thought horrific things, horrific ideas that if the general public ever found out about it, you'd be, can't, you couldn't get a job at McDonald's for the rest of your life. Like you're a horrible person. We all have that rolling around in our heads. We've all got that in our hearts. So in light of how fucking complicated we are, how do we get better? And the we is everybody, but me as a leftist, how do we get better at letting people evolve and believing that they can? Yeah, I love that. I think in some ways this book is a call for a political vibe shift. Um, I think in some ways the vibe of the last many years has been a very strident, angry, um, kind of rageful, despairing vibe. And I don't fault anyone for that, I mean, including myself, who very much participated in that vibe. I think that's the vibe of the Trump years, you know, and what came a little bit before it and what came a little bit, has continued a little bit after it, despite Biden winning. I think that was in some ways a very natural vibe to go with this feeling of powerlessness <clears throat> of this really awful thing happening and this really grief of the loss of the country and you know, you can't do anything about this big, powerful force. So you can, but you, but you can, you know, dunk on each other on Twitter and that kind of thing. And so, I think in some ways, in the despair of not being able to do anything about that, the king, um, we turned on each other, and and our culture turned this inflammatory direction. To be clear, I think a lot of some of it, you know, a lot of it even is good. Like I love that we have an angrier culture around, like 
the abuse of women. And I love that we have an angrier culture on Black Lives Matter. Like, right. I mean, a, a lot of what has arisen as more confrontational in recent years is also just accountability, finally. Right. And, and women and people of color telling the world finally what it was always like to be them or trans people telling the world what it was always like to be them. And now we're listening. And that's part of that. That's the generative part of our culture becoming a little more, you know, uh, sometimes tough and demanding. And, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful that people are not suppressing themselves and silencing themselves um, to make things, you know, nice and smooth and happy. That said, I am, I am interested in the problem of how do these people who want the kind of world I want, which is a world of more openness, more inclusion, a world, this kind of America that we're building that is made of people from everywhere, where people of all backgrounds can thrive and live their best lives. Um, how can we win? How can we win? Are we winning? How can we win? You know, I'm not interested in like, can we like have nicer conversations? I'm not like in the bravers, braver angels, these other things. Like, that's fine. Like, you can do that if you want to do that. I'm not like a moderate, like we should have, as you said, well, and I appreciate you clarifying that about the book. Like, I'm not someone who has like an aesthetic interest in, in the quality of our conversations. Like, I think anger is fine. I think division is actually fine. What I'm really writing about is contempt and dismissal, right? And what marriage counselors will tell you is that anger is fine in a marriage, no problem, right? Fights are fine. Contempt is the end of a marriage, right? And when you get to contempt, it's over or at risk of being over. And I think in America, we've gotten to this place where people who want to win the future have become so contemptuous. We've all become so contemptuous of the others and the possibility that others could change that we're just shooting our own movements in the foot. And I'm interested in these movements, you know, not having the mentality it takes to win. And so I wrote about these, these amazing uh, organizers, most of, mostly women, who, are, who I think are pushing for a different way, who are saying, and, and I want to clarify one thing. None of these people in the book are saying we should go like talk to the fascists, right? Like there is a hardcore 10, 20, 30%, pick your number and pick the battle, pick the place. Hardcore right now. That is deeply committed to fa fascism in America now, right? I would probably say like 20%, right? Um, so if you think about that, those kind of ideas pulling at like 46, right? Imagine like just under half of those people, what they have is that they've like, they've read the books they've watched the YouTube videos or, or, or they're just, they've thought about it. They're, they're church networks. It's a reinforced, it's a baked worldview, right? It's not, you're not going to talk them out of it in five minutes, right? But in politics in general, there's, you know, that it's, it's the same thing about like how many people wanted a socialist in the democratic primary. You get that kind of 20% number, right? And then there's a next group that will often, in the, if you're lucky, or, or unlucky as the case may be, well, vote with that 20%, that is not the same as that 20%, yep, right? Yep. That next 20, 25% is voting on vibes often. They like the way someone makes them feel the way that person feels to them. They feel that person's fighting for them. It's personal. The, you know, <clears throat> They want to have a beer with that guy, that kind of thing. They want change. They feel that person, you know, so the people who voted for Obama twice and then, and then Trump, you know, they, in their mind, the consistency was a person who was going to break the system because the system sucks. That's real. Um, you can judge these motivations or reasons, or you cannot judge them. It doesn't matter, but they, they're real. If you've ever done voter interviews, you know, people are all over the place, right? 
and it's not as typecast as we think, you know. Um, and the whole game is about that next group of people, right? And and it may be, you know, depending on the issue and year, whatever, twenty to sixty percent of the people in play uh, of the people in an electorate are. I'm not saying you can get all of them. There's no world in which you can get all of them. But you may be able to get like three to five percent of that broad, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent. And in America, three to four to five percent of that, about 10 percent of those people is a revolutionary difference. It's a difference between getting women having the right to choose and not having the right to choose. It's a difference between wars and not having wars. It's the difference between, uh, you know, a white supremacist commander in chief and not a white supremacist commander in chief. And so the people I'm writing about are not Pollyannas. They're not, they're not trying to do dialogue for its own sake. They're quite practically thinking about how do we use the way we communicate with people and use a, have more kind of a, of a strategic empathy um, in order to get more people to defect from fascism so that our kids can have a safe and flourishing life. Um, and I think, you know, for those listening to this, watching it, um, these organizers have real things that you can implement, right? It, it, you can get organized on the big political issues using some of what they're, what they teach in the book, but also like, some of you will have climate deniers in your family, or you'll have, you know, big lie peddlers in your family or workplace. You will have people who have fallen prey to QAnon. It's so many American families are losing people to the cult of QAnon. Um, and this book, through the stories of these organizers and, and others, I think suggests a way of dealing with that that is 180 degrees from what most of us do on instinct, right? We, we are generally approaching these people in our lives all wrong. I learned that. I, I, I have been approaching these people all wrong. And I think these organizers have a playbook that I try to capture in the, in the, in the persuaders um, that really turns a lot of this on its head. And I, and I urge people to, to, to see if this new playbook that is working on the ground in communities across this country can, can also work in, in your life. That's a very, that was a very hopeful bit because it clarified for anyone listening up to this point that you're not talking about going, you know, head to head with fascists and QAnon followers and, you know, the, the, the people that were literally the Nazi salute over the 405 in Los Angeles yesterday, those people, it's going to be a whole different level of engagement or we're not even touching that at all. But you address that. Those people need to overwhelm and defeat those people. Yes, Exactly. And, but, but I love that you pointed out that we're talking about there are tens of millions of people in this country alone, in the United States of America, that are persuadable that if we take this playbook and we, and all of us, and to break that down, each person listening right now, wherever you are politically, you know people. Forget even, because it seems kind of big to be like, I'm going to go out, how am I going to go out there and persuade those tens of millions of people? You don't have to. If all of us just thought about our immediate sphere of influence, our immediate surroundings, I have in my sphere of influence between my immediate family and friends and different people since 2016, I probably have 
no less than 100 people that trust me, I trust them, they know me, and if I were to engage them, and they're also in that 20 to 60%, they're also very persuadable. That's 100 people that I alone, I'm not going to, I can't do all of that, but I could go to each one of those people and really tactfully get into it with them. And those are people that I believe could be persuaded. So maybe I, not 100, maybe I end up really tackling 10 over the next few months. Well, if all of us do 10, good God, like hundreds of thousands, millions of people can be persuaded out of these harmful ideologies and into still a harm, still a, a, a bad system that has flaws, but one that is going to help more people, one that is going to really serve more people at the end of the day. Um, really helpful, really, really helpful. I know that I have taken uh, a couple more minutes in an hour of your time. This has been really fascinating. Uh, friends that are listening, winners take all, please get that book. But more than that, because we're talking about this one and it really matters these days, who's buying stuff, right? Who, you know, those that are watching the numbers get a copy of the persuaders at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. Anand, I hope we can do something again. It was really fun to talk to you. And I hope that the rest of your book tour goes swimmingly. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed the conversation and, and love what you're doing. So thank you very much. Damn givers, friends, thank you so much for showing up, for spending some time this week with Anand and me. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week, most importantly, because we have so many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins-Harn, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda, and you can reach out anytime for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from you. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>